Welcome back to The Bunker Daily with me, Andrew Harrison. We hope you'll be joining us for the exclusive Zoom live stream next Thursday, the 9th of July at 8 o'clock. It's exclusive to Patreon backers, so search Patreon Bunker Podcast to sign up and join us for drinks and diatribes. Today on The Bunker, when's the last time you ate out? Can you remember the last restaurant you visited and what you had? And how much would you give to have a meal that you don't have to cook yourself and dishes that you don't have to do afterwards. COVID has been an existential shock for the restaurant business and now the industry, worth 38 billion with more than 86,000 restaurants up and running before the crisis, faces a fight for survival. And almost a million people who work in the restaurant business could lose their jobs too. What are restaurants doing to save themselves? What does government need to do? And how can we help apart from ordering 10 gourmet burgers a night? To explain all this, we're joined by the doyen of restaurant critics, host of Radio 4's Kitchen Cabinets, author of a string of books, including A Greedy Man in a Hungry World and Wasted Calories and Ruined Nights, host of the Outer Lunch podcast. I knew him when he was my editor at the Lead Student newspaper. It's Jay Rayner. How are you doing? It's very nice to see how well you've come on in life, Andrew. Oh well, we've I've done my best, you know. I've, I've tried, I've tried to, you know, I've I've tried to follow your example, Jay, yeah, in a small and, way, and fulfil the the faith I had in you when uh, you were my. I think you were my my deputy at one point, weren't you? I was, I was your, I was your mini me. Yeah, I was, I was your, I was your junior. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I can't remember what the age difference is. I think you're actually older than me. It's, I'm older than everybody these yeah. days, which it certainly feels that way. So, listen, I want to ask you. Yeah, you must be climbing the walls. Your your raison d'être has been stuck, has been robbed from you. Well, no, it hasn't, and I'm very, mm. very sort of insistent that people understand that I've I've not had a bad pandemic, um, <laughs> and that is because my job is a writing job, not an eating job. I mean, yes. let's be absolutely clear. I love restaurants. I adore them. I am gagging to get back into them. I have two bookings on July the 4th, not just one. One at lunch, one at dinner. It wasn't planned, but it's happened. Um, but my job is a writing job, and I have been fully employed through this. I'm very, you know, check, I check my yeah. privilege. I've got loads. Um, but yes, I want to get back into them. Um, not because really I had nothing to write about, but I've had loads to write about, but because I think what we all crave is normality. We are desperate to get back to some form of normality. The big shock, I'm afraid, is that we'll go through a week to 10 days of woohoo, we're back in. And then it will start to dawn on us that no, we're not really, we're not quite. It's not like yeah. it was, it's very different. Yeah. So we are recording this on the 30th of June. Yeah, and the unlocking's happening on the fourth of July this yeah. weekend. Uh, in, in, apart from yourself, who's obviously going to like fly in like crazy. But where are your bookings? There, where are you going? What, what are your first places? I, I can't entirely tell you. Uh, so first of all, there was um, a place in the city, the Square Mile. Yeah, they dropped an email into my inbox. I'm, I'm sure it was just a general mailing. Not, I mean, I was just one on a big list saying we're taking bookings. But that was very early. I would say the first week of June. And when I first saw it, I closed my inbox down and went, hang on, what? Um, yeah. and, so, and I thought the least I could do is reward this ridiculous act of stupid self-confidence on their part by booking a table. So I booked one that evening for, uh, it's, a, it's a late one, it's nine o'clock, which is helpful as it turns out. So that will be the first review, but because of newspaper lead times, which you fully understand, won't appear until July the 19th. Now, at that point, I then, well, we all realised at the paper that, hey, these restaurants are opening on a Saturday. The Observer is a Sunday paper. It's one of the curios of a Sunday paper that we look back over the whole week, but we are also the daily paper of the day that's just gone before, the Saturday. So we need to have a piece from me, a colour piece in the newspaper saying, woohoo, 
restaurants are back open and here is our <laughs> restaurant critic at the table so then i have a another i had to book another table it's a smaller restaurant with a good profile but it's more of a neighborhood place than anything else so so listeners if they have a copy of the observer with them and they tap you on the shoulder they win five pounds they can uh we're in the world that was always Rainer. your thing wasn't it it was always if you spot me uh, uh, that must have been a really big thing on most <laughs> side of the newspaper business that spot our man did the liverpool echo do this they, I probably, almost certainly did. The Meat Trades Journal might have done it. I don't know. So are you ex- are you expecting a good result for the restaurant industry over the slightly longer term? Because, as you say, there's going to be 10 days of binging, but there's structural problems. It's going to be extremely tough. Yeah. Extremely tough. Because, you know, when it was uh, – I, I wrote a news story for The Observer about, you know, the impossibility of reopening under two metres social distancing uh, because the economics simply didn't work. You'd have to pull out over 50% of the tables. And – Although every week, every Sunday in the comments below the line on my restaurant review, people whinge about price. The restaurant industry isn't a gold mine. It's a financial conveyor belt. They need money going in one end and coming out the other. And and that's how it works. And if that conveyor belt stops, which is what's happened, even the most seemingly successful restaurants are in trouble. So they've all had a very, very hard time. And um, the the one thing that's going to be in their favor is the next couple of months. Uh, in Britain's big cities, certainly in Westminster, um, uh, there are plans to open up huge numbers of streets to turn them into a big open-air cafe along the model of the Vilnius uh, plan, the, the big summer cafe. So if you've got a combination of outside eating and takeaways and the number that you can get inside, I think certain restaurants will be able to get themselves towards a form of profitability, but they've had their resources depleted. It's very, very tough. And then there are other questions. One, a lot of people don't have a lot of cash at the end of this. They've been furloughed, yeah. they've been out of work or whatever. And two, for all of those of us who are gagging to get out into a crowd and think, looking at the metrics, that it's okay, there are a lot of people who quite reasonably just don't want to get in a crowd. Um, and one of the things that was said to me very early on in this by a very good restaurateur, um, Russell Norman, who said, you know, um, we're selling an atmosphere. We're selling a room. We're not selling plates of food. We're selling a good night out. And you have to look in the room and want to go in there. And I hope that people feel comfortable and safe enough to do so. But that's going to make it very tricky. I wish I could be just much more optimistic. I'm delighted so many are back. But there are real challenges ahead. Yeah, I mean, this, this is, I mean, we sort of started on the podcast talking about FOGO in a semi, semi kind of humorous way, fear of going out, but it's actually real. Oh, it's absolutely real. I mean, you know, um, uh, various people are going to be in high risk categories. We know what the infection rate is around central London for the moment, but on the day that we're talking, all the Leicester stuff has really kicked off. Yeah. And there's no particular reason why Leicester should be unique. In fact, we've already been told it won't be. Um, and at some point, there will be other outbreaks. And this is a bastard of a virus, and it kills people. So, you know, it, it's not ridiculous to, to have concerns. But I suppose if you do all the things you can do, then you should be able to return to some form of normality. Because epidemics do come in peaks and troughs. Yeah. Um, you know, without wanting to sort of, you know, I'm just trying to be glass, uh, glass half full with this. Oh, yeah. Are there parts of the restaurant business that were... You know, we all talk in terms of disruption. Oh, disrupting an industry is always great. Other parts of the restaurant business that kind of that you'll be glad to see, you know, fade away. You know, nasty practices, places that just were not doing what people need. All right. So here are the here are the the, the things that appear to be suffering. 
Um, there are some very high-end restaurants that we've heard cl- about closures of. Uh, the Greenhouse in Mayfair has gone. Um, a Michelin two-star. I do not believe the number... I mean, obviously, I don't want anybody to lose their jobs. But we can afford to lose a few Michelin two-star restaurants, three-star, all that sort of yeah. stuff. That That's not going to make a massive dent in the culture. Let's put it that way. Um, I suspect some of the mega chains are really going to suffer because a lot of their trade is city center based. And one of the things the, the restaurant business is really talking about at the moment is that the suburbs or the inner suburbs are doing fine because people don't necessarily want to travel that far. But the centre of cities, the centre of London, is a bit of a wasteland. So we may see some big chains being brought low by moderate trade in their outer central restaurants, but nothing at all in the in the centre of town. And actually, again, just today, uh, on the day that we're talking, June 30th, um, a group of major London restaurateurs led by Angela Hartnett and Trevor Gulliver, who's uh, uh, Fergus Henderson's business partner at St John, have put together a letter sort of basically saying, don't let London die, don't overlook us, with a whole bunch of claims, which I know some people have reacted quite badly to. It's like, put more carriages on tube trains. I'm not sure where they'll come from. Uh, scrap the congestion charge. Well, I don't think TfL is really, uh, mm. Transport for London is really in a position to do that. But that's that's one of the things we're seeing. Central London is potentially in real trouble. Do you think that there'll be a change in people's you know, what people are looking for from restaurants, such as not just in the sense that we might have to get used to, you know, the very expensive bill and so on, but, but might might we sort of see the industry retrenching into kind of maybe more conventional menus that you visit for places you visit more often rather than the kind of outre places you visit once a year? Let's start with the basics here, which is what we've just gone through is, um, you know, we call it once in a lifetime. It's not, it's once in a century event, um, like a world war. And they change society. They change things drastically. And I think there are going to be some massive changes. I'm not going to try and be Nostradamus and claim I know what they are. Um, But there's going to be a lot of disruption and a lot of change. Um, One would hope it would take the froth off the top of it. The, the silliness, the, the stuff which is all style over substance. But I've been raving against that for the stupidly long number of years that I've been doing this <laughs> job. Um, the cost of eating out, out is likely to go up rather than down, to be honest. For mm. example, you know, just on simple social distancing measures, things like, you know, if, if you decide various people in the kitchen all have to wear gloves or you've got masks, you've got sanitizer, you've got disposable menus, uh, a business can easily run up 100 quid a day on that. That's £25,000 a year before you, you know where you're at. And that has to be recouped somehow. So we, I think we're going to see extra costs. Um, and it will be very interesting to see what happens to those luxe restaurants supported by a high net worth economy, which floats above the rest of you know, the rest of society, but which has sustained a whole bunch of businesses for a very long time, which we could probably do without. It's interesting you mentioned that, you know, things like a world war, because, you know, the last world war gave us the lion's corner houses, didn't it? And the kind of eating, the kind of large yeah. communal eating places where it was a good, cheap meal. But of course, there was a lot of people in a small space. But, you know, that's not going to happen again. But you wonder if another kind of epiphenomenon might happen where we just eat out differently. For example, like, I, you know, my wife's American and she does not understand why we don't have a diner culture here where you might eat out once or twice a week. 
could something like that happen? I don't know. I love the fact that Lily, after so many years in this country, <laughs> still doesn't understand certain things. I mean, so what, 30 years? Um, still doesn't understand. <laughs> we were already seeing some very interesting things happening. The way that uh, street food culture had mutated in both interesting ways and disturbing ways, but created an entry point for younger cooks, cooks of colour, uh, who couldn't access the hospitality industry through any other way, um, using it as a, an access point by which to create something more permanent, cheaper, that people of a younger generation who frankly couldn't afford the ridiculous bills in most restaurants, mm. that happening. And I think more of that would be a very, very good thing. It's interesting you say that bills might go up because I was I did one of these uh, dailies uh, the other day about the live music business. Oh yeah, which faces a lot of very similar things. Well, you know, I can talk about and that. You're as in well. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, in your capacity as Jay Rayner, jazz pianist, there we go. Yeah. But what what the person I was talking to was saying was that gigs are going to get cheaper because they're going to need to get cheaper because you're looking at a different market. You're looking at young people who will have even less money, who have a different attitude to the danger of the virus, and they just will need to get them through the door. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I should say as a jazz pianist, tickets have never been expensive because nobody will ever pay a lot of money for jazz. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we're, we're going to have limits on audience sizes. Also, yeah. actually, there's not been a lot of talk about this, uh, limits on number of performers on stage. I, I front the Jay Rayner Quartet. We're not entirely sure whether we can get four people on the stage socially distanced. Um, Ronnie Scott's opens quite shortly, and I, I've just heard that they may be thinking about no more than two people on stage at once. It's kind of interesting. So you're going to be the Jay Rayner duo. Well, well, I can do that because the singers, you know, Singer's my wife, so yeah, you uh, can't fire her. Can I, you? I can't fire her, but also I think we're better on social distancing, uh, given that we often share the same bed. <laughs> well, I say often, all the time. Too much information, Jay. Um, well, so but talking I sleep about the same bed as my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, talking about the about the, the the kind of the value of the restaurant business to the economy. It is a huge business, and actually, it falls on some of the most. Um, precariously employed and underpaid people as well. Yes, it does. This has got huge social consequences. Yeah, the um, you gave some figures at the top. The ones I've always banded, I, I banded them around for the hospitality industry, which I think includes hotels and bars and everything, is somewhere north of 75 billion uh, and a workforce uh, altogether of over 3 million. Um, and there is concern that a million of those could lose their jobs just like that. And then we are back very quickly in the unemployment rates of the 1980s. But you're absolutely right. A lot of these jobs are underpaid uh, and the the working standards are just not very good. Um, and a crisis is not necessarily the best way to see improvements in living standards, is it? Um, and that's yeah. concerning. Um, so you're, you're, in a way, you've got to catch me too. You want people to go out. You want people to spend their money in restaurants and bars. But you're also telling them that it may cost more if you want the people who are serving you to receive the kind of remuneration they deserve. I might have been saying that for a while, but people get very cross. It's actually quite similar to the music business as well in the world where, you know, music's been effectively free for, you know, 20 years. And the argument that you've got to pay for this if you want it to exist still you know it's quite hard to to, to get across to, to people well, it, it is i mean we, we've seen a, a change in the music industry um which i know from lots of my more professional friends which is that the recorded music is of very little value and you yeah. now do that for as promotion for the live 
um, and live is now in a digital age where it's hard to really have an authentic experience. The live experience becomes the thing. But this does apply to restaurants as well. It's about getting close to something that feels uniquely, authentically real. And that's one of the great things about restaurants. It's someone cooking for you in real time. Yeah. So what can be done about all this? I want to ask you firstly about what is government doing and ought to be doing uh, in order to preserve this sector, which is a huge part of the culture, but also a huge part of the hard economy. Yeah, well, I don't think it just applies to um, the hospitality sector, this, but there are various parts of the economy which need a fully tapered long term furlough scheme uh, where you have to acknowledge that you cannot get everybody back to to work um at the at the same rate um and you know there are some businesses that'll all be going back you know, a lot of uh, non-essential retail that are, they're already back but restaurants will have to ease their way back we all know i'm crossing my fingers at you that the thing we're hoping for is a is a vaccine which yeah. would even but even then I, how long would that take to vaccinate our population of over 60 million we're talking a year two years this is a long drawn out experience so a longer furloughing scheme um, and, and this is, this is why I put my old political history head on, as we did a similar degree <laughs> at university back in the century before this in the one. good old days. In the good old days. <laughs> People, you know, fret about, well, where is all this money coming from? Where, uh, how can this be? And there are these once-in-a-century moments where what, as a government, you do is it, you say it's almost like taking out a mortgage on a house. You yeah. rack up a, a discrete package of enormous debt, which you then pay off. One of the um, guests on my on my fine podcast, Out to Lunch, other podcasts are available, was uh, <laughs> Ed Balls, the former Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Um, he told me that during his time as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, they paid off the last tranche of money that they of, of the loans that they'd raised for the Second World War. That is what we're talking about, a 50-year, 60-year uh, payoff for this kind of debt. So you put it to one side, you pay it off like a mortgage while maintaining the economy. Um, so we need to see an extended furlough system. I think the end of VAT on hot food would be a really good idea. Um, so at the moment, I, I don't know if you're across the VAT system, but VAT is payable on hot food, which mm. means while certain, you know, the vast majority of food in supermarkets is non-vatable, uh, food in restaurants is vatable. Um, the theory being that uh, value has been added through the preparation thereof if they removed that from restaurant food prices could well in theory drop by 20 percent. but just imagine they were able to put keep five percent of that yeah um, and then you've got a, an economic model but they become cheaper to the consumer it's things like that yeah which eventually returns to the exchequer anyway in the form of increased spending well, of because course. people can keep yeah. their jobs. Yeah, yeah. so round and round, yeah. round it goes. I, you know, mm-hmm. the the logic of the whole furlough system was that if they if they let everybody fall out of work, the welfare bill and the impact on communities and the impact on education, the impact on skills would just be vast. So it wasn't yeah. some you know generous oh let's look after people idea. It simply made economic sense. Yeah. And at the, I sort of mentioned at the beginning the you know the idea that there must be something we can do apart from order, ordering ten gourmet burgers a night. Um, and I've got to admit, I've been spending an awful. I've been feeling good about ordering in. I've been feeling I'm supporting businesses here. But there's got to be something more that you know we the people can do apart from you know forcing ourselves to go out more. Well, if I was being really kind of 
fist in the air and brutal about it, I would say choose where you spend that money. Um, there are a lot of, you know, big chains, perhaps owned by hedge funds. You might decide that it is better to spend your money with independence where you know that that is going back into the economy directly rather than hit the bottom line of some investment fund. I think it's about consumers making choices. Which is easier to do if if you're like us and you live in London and you live in places with lots of independent restaurants. And it may be one of the reasons that you move to live here anyway. But if you're kind of elsewhere in the country... Well, that's, tricky, that, I mean, that's absolutely true, although the picture across the country is very different from what it was. Just over the uh, – I, I caused a bit of a stir 48 hours ago when I tweeted that for the foreseeable future there would be no negative restaurant reviews from me. doesn't mean that I'll <laughs> give everywhere a good review. I'll be talking about this in more detail in my column. But, I, you know, people got a bit sort of up to go, well, what's the point of you? I was just saying, you know, if I come across a place that's not very good, I just won't write about it. Uh, I only write 50 restaurant reviews a year, and there are lots of terrible places I never write about. I'm just going to write about fewer terrible restaurants. But then I also, um, one of the interesting things is London restaurants are very good at letting you know what's going on. They have PRs to help them. And I suspect a lot of the PRs are doing stuff for free for the moment to, you know, get their clients through. So they've all told me when they're opening. But what I didn't have was a picture of what's going on across the UK. So I just put out a tweet saying, restaurants outside London, let me know when you're reopening. I, I kid you not, on this computer over here, on my email, well, it could be the computer in front of me, I have, you know, dozens, well over yeah. 100 emails from independent little restaurants all over the UK announcing what they're doing. And it's heartening, actually. It's it's a story of, you know, we talk about the hospitality industry, which makes it sound like mining or steelworking. But in reality, it's a cottage industry of individuals who just want to run restaurants. And whatever it was like 20 years ago when I, God help me, first started this job, it's a very different landscape now. And there are very few places in the UK where your choices really are those highly sophisticated but rather monotonous chains everywhere now has its mm. independence maybe you just need to do a little bit more research or maybe people like me need to do their work and tell you where they are you have been writing a lot in the you wrote at the weekend actually about restaurants that have been innovating with meal kits the takeaways that you cook yourself it was one of a trio i've got three of those in a row mm-hmm. um i kind of it's interesting right at the beginning i was late transferring in real time so the restaurants closed, but I still had two or three weeks restaurant reviews that ran. And by the same token, the restaurants will start reopening, but I'll still be talking about delivery meal kits for a couple of weeks, <laughs> which is fine because I think that's still going to be a part of the story. Um, yeah. And there has been a lot of really good innovation. Um, and some of that will remain. Um so the one at the weekend, I think, uh, Jaconi, Ravinda Bogle's place, she'd innovated brilliantly. They'd done a lot of work on coming up with com- uh, compostable packaging, which kind of matters. Yeah. You, you don't want to feel like an eco scumbag when you get your takeaway in. Um, and then I've got one coming up this weekend. It's actually from a group of restaurants in the Northwest, where you're from. Um, I'm from. Yeah, where you're from. And they're sending out full meal kits, which are hilarious because they're basically take bag A and put into a pot of water and then plate with bag B and bag C. And it's all recyclable plastic. But it's very, very complicated. I can't tell you the mess I made in my own kitchen. <laughs> One of the ironies of your of your column is that the that there's almost somebody in the comments going sixty quid for that I could cook it at home 
And now we are cooking it at home. Well, it yeah. is ha- actually happening. But, has, has this changed our relationship with cooking? Not just the sourdough craze and not just the fact that, you know, uh, it, there's a certain sort of Marie Antoinette-ish kind of, oh, I cooked it for well, some people. Yeah, there, there, there was one chef who said to me, I'm really worried that people have a different relationship with restaurants that have worked out they can do it themselves. Well... We we have actually it's been a, a very binary story the story of food during COVID nineteen it's been a story between people being able to luxuriate in food because they got the money to afford it and they can and they're actually enjoying cooking or even if they're moaning about it oh god another night whatever um, and then those who've had no food at all and that's been the utter dichotomy um, but no I, I, I maybe some people will have discovered a new a new joy in time in the kitchen. I've had a lot of fun, but then, you know, that's what I do. But a lot of people will be gagging to get back to the old normal, not a new normal. And that means Mm. that they will, if they can, want to go to restaurants. Finally, this is all taking place against the backdrop of an impending probable no-deal Brexit. (laughs) And you gave us a, hey, Brexit, bingo. You gave us a pretty chilling idea of what, old-fashioned Brexit might mean for food on a, on a pastromaniacs. This could be serious injury on top of serious injury. You know, I wrote a big piece about what happened to the food supply chain during COVID to The Observer, still available online. Uh, you can find a link to it on my website, jrainer.co.uk. And one of the people I spoke to said, a very serious food analyst, he said, we're expecting 25% of traded global food to simply fall out, that there's a long-term thing, that we've got through it for now, but now we're trying to get back on, you know, but but it's going to be rocky in the months to come. One of the real issues is that any kind of store that there was that had been put in place to deal with that no-deal Brexit possibility in January has gone. And mm. now we are... Oh yeah, what can I tell you? It's still the same the same stuff. We're talking about flows through ports. We're talking about workforce. Um, it's all very, very bleak. And, the, you know, uh, the gang in Downing Street carries on doing their bellicose chat about we're, we're, we're out, there's no transition. Um, I'm beginning to suspect they're going to find a weasel way with language to extend. Something to do with we'll we'll just maintain a customs union, and the EU will agree to it uh, for lots of for lots of reasons. But otherwise, it's very serious. This it's very serious indeed. And as you say, we've been preoccupied, and we may not see it coming. Uh, you know, we've been suspecting on on the podcast that you know, and it's not the world's most piercing insights that you know, like the way you give a dog a pill by wrapping it in bacon, that this you know this kind of catastrophe may be the thing that uh, you know No Deal is, is is wrapped up in. But I guess we're going to find out pretty soon, aren't we? I think we are. I think we are. Um, there will be a, a, a literal and figurative hunger uh, for reassurance that the whole system is not going to fall apart. Um, One small observation, I've always been struck by the fact that Dominic Cummings presents himself as a technocrat, not an ideologue, just someone who wants things to function better. And now he's in charge, and they've made a bloody mess of it, technocratically. Um, And it looks to me like the same is about to happen over Brexit. We'll see. They're going to have to own it. Well, all we can do in the meantime, you and I, is to try and... In the wise words of Marky e. Smith, eat yourself fitter, eat our way out of this, go out, buy things and eat them. Jay Rayner, thank you very much for joining us. 
Um, and do come back soon if you can face it. Remember, listeners, there's a new Bonker Daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays. The main panel podcast comes out on Wednesdays. Don't forget the live stream is on Thursday, the 9th of July at 8pm. So go to Patreon Bunker to find out about that. Thank you for listening and we will see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented and produced by me, Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald and audio production is by Robin Lieburn. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Music